I'm Adam Jackson. And I'm Gabe Lunas-Deseski. We're two serial entrepreneurs and investors here in Silicon Valley. We're building a new talent network called Brain Trust and have created the Way Work Should Work podcast, where we'll dive into new business models, incentive systems, and ownership structures that will affect how every single one of us works. We're joined by top tech investors, business leaders, and academics on the front lines shaping the future of work. Today's guest is Chike Agu, Head of Economic Mobility Pathways at the Education Design Lab. Chike leads the Community College Growth Engine Fund, an innovation tri-sector and multi-million dollar effort turning community colleges into bridges to dignified work for every American learner and worker. Chike is also a technology human rights fellow at the Harvard Carr Center for Human Rights Policy where he's writing a book on the future of work and racial equality, and a faculty member at Columbia University. Chike has spent his career working across sectors to create a future of work for all. He lives with his wife and their son in Prince George's County, Maryland. Welcome to the show, Chike. Thanks for being here. Adam, Gabriel, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. So, Chika, let's let's start with a little bit of your background. Uh, you sure. know, tell us more about your upbringing, how it kind of shaped the person you are today, and also like you have such an interesting space that you're working in. Like, how did you find your way to the work that you're doing today? It's a great question. I, I've said it before, and it's a phrase that Bill Clinton came up with. But I say we're all prisoners of biography, and that's definitely true of me. Our family is a very classic immigrant story to this country. So, my parents are from a village in. Uh, a rural village in Nigeria that most Nigerians themselves will never go to and never visit. It is, um, you know, my grandparents didn't go past middle school. My, my parents, who literally grew up over the hill from one another, they had Peace Corps volunteers in, in their classrooms. And then they both, frankly, got golden tickets. My dad got a scholarship to come study here in the States at the University of Texas. My mom got the chance to come study at uh, Rutgers University, public university in the state of New Jersey. And I say very often, uh, without you know American opportunity and particularly American education, I wouldn't be here, just very bluntly. And they came here and were able to kind of have me and my siblings and have the life that allows me to sit and talk to you all today. And again, that's a pretty remarkable journey over the course of one generation from four parents who didn't go past middle school, grandparents who didn't go past middle school, to me sitting here talking to you. And so I like to say that's what happens when America kind of gets it right. I think what we also know is that America gets it right far too infrequently. And frankly, we're living through a lot of those consequences because of it. And we know, frankly, the odds of America getting it right with you too much depend on where you live, what you look like, what your parents make or what they do. And so for me, very much, I realize I'm not here because I'm better or more fortunate. I'm, I'm here because the coin of fate fell in my favor. And the question is, how do we make sure that, you know, the journey that I described to you is not just an exception, but becomes a rule for more and more people. I think it's not just what's the right thing to do, but it's the smart thing to do for our economy. And I think it's also um, the right thing to do for us in terms of how we feel about ourselves as a country and as a nation. So that's really what's kind of brought me to this. And when I think about the future of work, and when I talk about the future of work, it's very simply, where do the jobs come from and how do we make sure that the people in our country have the skills and capacities to do them? It's in many ways an outgrowth of, 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 I think, a life that I've lived. I mean, I think about this. When I was, God, I must have been probably one or two, my mom was going to class. She was in her, her early 20s going to class at Rutgers University in, in the evenings. During the day, she would cut fabric at a dress shop uh, in East Orange, New Jersey for minimum wage. When it came time to come to class, she would go take me to my dad's job, leave me with the security guard because my dad wasn't off the shift. She would go to class. My dad would come out, I'd be raising all types of hell, and he would, he would take me home. And again, 
there are a lot of families doing that right now, but who, but with frankly, without the luck and the breaks and also what a lot of what my parents were, were able to go through, don't get to have my story end the way it's ending for me right now. And so the question is again, how do, how do we help folks who did what my parents did have a story that ends more like mine? Fascinating background. Super cool to hear, to hear how, how it came to be. <laughs> so this, this is a relatively new gig for you, right? Head of, head of economic mobility pathways at the sure. education design lab. It's, it's also like a newly created position from what right. I could see. Can you tell us a little bit about your mandate there? Like what's the goal of your work and like maybe what's the time horizon that you're working sure. with? So let me zoom out a little bit and talk about the Education Design Lab as a whole. We're about seven years old as an organization. And our founder, Kathleen Delasky, storied career across journalism at ABC News, at the Clinton Pentagon, as a spokesperson, at Sally Mae Foundation, at AOL. But what led her to this work was being on the board of visitors at George Mason University in Northern Virginia, just right across the river from me. And in that role, she saw the disconnect between higher education and employment, and she said, we gotta do something about this. And it's not just the what, but the how. And so as she scanned the landscape, her eyes fell on Silicon Valley. And if you look at the practices, particularly from a design thinking perspective that make our consumer technology products so easy and great and addictive to use, what if we apply many of those same practices that IDEO and Frog are, are using on those products? What if we applied that to higher education and used it toward the purpose of redesigning higher education to fit the future of work. That's really the mandate of us. And so we've worked with over 135 colleges and universities across the country, big, small, public, private, community college, four year, as well as over 70 employers in 10 regions across uh, this country towards that end with HBCU grads, single moms, students who are looking to transfer. And so this work, the Community College Growth Engine Fund, actually a year ago was when the idea first came out, which is how do we use community colleges to spur personal economic mobility and also help transform regions. And I'll be honest, there wasn't much uptake for a while in terms of funders and resources and partners. And then COVID happened. And all of a sudden, and really credit to my colleagues that, you know, and I'm taking, and I'm benefiting from their um, good work. They were able to raise a couple million dollars in a very short period of time to do a thing, which is this, how do we take community colleges, which are the largest producer of American undergraduates, which, which most people don't know, the largest producer likely of undergraduates of color, 1,100 of them across the country, largest probably footprint you have in American higher education. And how do you take them, help them transform and help other, their ecosystems transform to get people into work? People who due to COVID are not in work currently because they, they got displaced, or frankly, people who've never really been in the workforce to begin with. And again, if we look at this from an equity perspective, we know who those people are. They're traditionally, Disproportionately women, disproportionately people of color, disproportionately people who don't get to live in parts of the country like, you know, San Francisco or New York City or DuPont Circle in D.C. They're the people who are on the wrong side of a lot of other issues. How do we use community colleges, this amazing footprint and infrastructure that we have to get those folks back to work? So the Community College Growth Engine Fund is a six-site national demonstration project to do just that. We're going to be working with six colleges and their ecosystems around the country. We actually will be announcing those six institutions on Wednesday of next week, but uh, large pioneering institutions, and not just them, but their ecosystems, their largest employers, their local K-12 school districts, and working with these ecosystems to design what we call micropathways. Micropathways two or more credentials, baskets of skills that create a direct on-ramp to a job. Our goal, very simply, is that in the next two years, as in what we call phase one, we have roughly four to 5,000 people in work 
not just with a credential award and not just participation, but in work, not just any work in a job that pays at least an area median wage that puts them on a career path within a number of years to get to a living wage for themselves and, and their families. That's our goal in phase one. Phase two is to take what we've learned and to take that from thousands to millions, to use the, the Silicon Valley parlance, how do we go viral? I think it's overly used, but frankly, that's what we're looking for. And how do we work with a number of other types of levers to get this to as many people as possible so that frankly, at the end of year five, we're not just talking about four to 5,000 people at work, but a million people at work. Because for me, when I agreed to take on this role, I said, look, we're gonna, if you look at 2008, it took us six years to get back to job levels from 2007. And I'll be frank, we don't have that much time. So the question is, how do we take this project and use it to put a big dent in the rough right now, depending on how you count it, 13 to 15 million people who are now out of work. And so that's you know, my goal. That was a, the bogey that was given to me. And so why I'm so excited to do the work. How, how do we use community colleges to create an economy that, don't just make us, that doesn't just make us prosperous, but that also makes us proud? GK, this is awesome. I, I want to drill further into this. You know, for, first of all, you, you, when you were giving your intro, talking about America doing the right thing, and it reminded me of the famous quote, America always does the right thing after it's tried everything else. <laughs> and uh, we're, we're seeing the try everything else right now with the, the horrible immigration policy and tearing up the H-1Bs and Absolutely. all of this other mass stupidity coming from the top here. And so I, I re, this sounds like an incredible program. I, you know, my, my parents both went to community college. I have a lot of members of my family in Ohio that went they are incredible programs. So first of all, th this episode won't actually come out until after your announcement. So if you want to name them now, that'd be awesome. If you prefer not to, that's fine. But no, I'm actually, I'm, I, I'm actually have to, I, I, I forgot about it. So the six institutions that, that we'll be working with, we're honored to work with are the CUNY system in New York city, hmm. uh, Prince George's community college right here in actually my home County in uh, here in Maryland, Austin community college in the city of Austin, Texas. Seattle Colleges in Seattle, Washington, Pima Community College in Tucson, Arizona, and uh, Ivy Tech in Indiana. So those are going to be our six. These are what I call right side of the curve schools. These are institutions that have been leading here for a long time. And our goal is not just that we help them get these folks back to work, but that they're beacons for the country. Again, we want folks who, those other 1,100 to be able to have a place to look and learn from so they can replicate these prospects. That's how you, you begin to go from thousands to millions. So we're really excited to be able to work with them. We're honored to have them take on this call. But for us, we're also investing. We are investing a six-figure amount into each of these institutions in straight cash to help them do this work because it's not free. Thanks so much for listening to The Way Work Should Work, brought to you by Braintrust. Like what you're hearing on our podcast? Are you ready to take the next step? Visit usebraintrust.com backslash match to get matched with highly skilled technical talent today. And for our listeners of this podcast, we're offering a two-week free trial. That's right. Top tech talent delivered straight to your inbox within 48 hours, risk-free. Don't wait. Go to usebraintrust.com backslash match to get started today. That's U-S-E-B-R-A-I-N-T-R-U-S-T dot com backslash M-A-T-C-H to get started today. This, I mean, this sounds like a monumental undertaking, right? Because you have a couple of, of tailwinds or he, I guess headwinds here that I, I'd love to hear more of your thoughts about. So you've got community colleges are generally tax revenue supported, right? Um, and tax revenue is down the drain in most municipalities, right? Because sales taxes are down and income taxes are down. Then you've got folks 
out of work, you know, automation was kind of slowly chiseling away at a lot of these roles. And now we've just, you know, sort of destroyed hospitality. We've destroyed restaurants. We've destroyed transportation. And so now the acceleration of, of job loss has, has been breathtaking. And, and so no better time now, but you're navigating this boat right into the hurricane. I mean, tell me, how, like, how's it work? What do the mechanics look like for the, the first couple thousand people? And so you already said what success looks like. They, they land a median wage job in their area. But I mean, can you give us an example of, of a field or a skill set, something like that? Sure. So let me zoom out and then kind of come back to the question because it's really important. I like to say this, and you touched on this in your remarks, COVID didn't change anything. It revealed things and it accelerated things. And so the, when, I, when I talk about the future of work, I usually say the future of work has two component sub-challenges, which are important to understand because they interrelate, but they're distinct. The first is the one that we usually talk about, which is that technology obviates the need for a number of jobs. The example that I always use because it's very telling is autonomous vehicles. Autonomous vehicles on the road and mass between 2030 and 2040, depending on which expert you talk to, about 800 billion to a trillion dollars in economic output created because of the efficiencies. But it also, frankly, gets rid of the most commonly held profession by an American man being driving a vehicle. There's that challenge. That's roughly, a, and there are roughly a third of jobs that are similarly at risk. There's another challenge we don't talk as much about, but it's just as important, which is technology doesn't get rid of jobs, but it radically changes a job. And the example that I use is the loan officer. And so I, if I do a presentation, I always ask who's gotten a loan recently and people raise their hands. And I always say at some point during the talk with the loan officer, they left the room and they came back and they told you if you got the loan or not. What did they do when they left the room? And I'll ask this question. And usually people say, oh, they asked their supervisor. Oh, they checked your documents. And then someone will finally say they asked the computer. Yes, because the person who makes the call about whether you get the loan or not is not a person. It is, an, it is a multivariate regression algorithm. The job of the loan officer now is not to make the call. The job is customer acquisition on the front end, get people in the door, and then it's account management on the back end so that person stays with you, doesn't try and refinance, transfer the loan, and wants to bring you new business. That's an entirely different job now. Who was in charge of making sure the person who held the job of the loan officer made that shift? There's another third of jobs that that's happening to. And so when we think about the future of work, it's important to frame those two things. So now to your, to your question around how do those, these headwinds, and I'm going to name another one too. Community colleges are tax revenue dependent. If you look at the last 40 years in terms of American higher education as a whole, we have dramatically disinvested from those institutions, let's name it and name it squarely. This is, this is pre-COVID. So that's number one. And so one of the things that we are looking to do, one, is make the case for why there should be public investment. And this is being made right now, a number of, of op-eds very recently around this. But also, how do we create a business model between the community college and the employer? Let me use a really clear example. Arizona College of Nursing, they got a, they got a call in May of this year, right before graduation from, from, from a health system in California. Health system says, how many graduates do you have? Maybe 300, 400. Cool, we'll take them all. Sight unseen, we'll just take them all. Ideally, what you want is to create a business model where an employer can be very specific and almost show up with a purchase order for talent. Here's what I want, here it is, fill this, and they get that talent and they pay for it. Because you all run a business, there's a ROI balance sheet impact when I hire the right person, hire them quickly. A great company out in the Valley, started by a friend of mine, which you may have heard of, called Incredible Health, the fastest growing um, nurse recruitment platform in the country, specifically for nurses. They can cut the time for recruiting a nurse from 90 days to 30 days. That has huge impact on the bottom line for a hospital. Extrapolate this across industries. Even now, there are jobs where we have shortages. 
you see it's in allied health. You see it definitely in the, in the technology space. You tell me if you have enough front end UX designers, you tell me if you have enough back end engineer folks, definitely advanced manufacturing, you, you, you see this. So if we can fill those reliably and quickly, that's a balance sheet impact and a business should be willing to pay for that. That's how you begin to get around the tax revenue issue. You have to create another revenue model. And, it's to, and to me, that's gotta be from, from the business. That's how we, we begin to get around that it is super hard. It's not been done at scale, but that's what we're also trying to get to. Secondly, what's the path? And so basically for us, the first place where we start this path is getting employers to be very, very clear about the jobs, about what it takes to do a job. If you can do the job, you should get the job. What a lot of employers do is, well, I, it's too hard to figure out what it takes to do this job. Therefore, four-year degree, just say that, just say that uh, that's the requirement. Or I need this many years of experience. Whenever I've asked an HR person, why this many years of experience? No one can really tell me. They just say, hey, it's just a screening device that, that we use, so on and so forth. But every job has a component 32 tasks. And so getting an employee to be very specific about what those tasks are so they can tell a community college or workforce development provider exactly what it takes is number one. That's where this starts. And so we actually do this exercise with employers. It is hard to get an employer to be clear, even for a job that they do a lot. Secondly, community college has to build a set of skills and um, experiences that impart those capacities and those competencies. Number of different ways. You can do on-the-job apprenticeship. You can do in-class instruction. You can do virtual instruction. Lots of ways to skin that cat. But the goal is to do that. Come back on the back end, bring that person back to the employer, and the employer has to be able to recognize they have those skills in an objective, bias-free way. And this is a place where we know, whether it be screening out for degrees, we know that for frankly, people of color, women, they get screened out a lot, even if when they can do the job. And it's self-defeating for the employer because they still have these shortages. So do, that's the path that we're looking to walk with these community colleges and the employers. And the, the third tailwind is getting employers to also change, number one, how they tell the market what, what they want and being clear about bringing those people in. That's a hard thing. Higher education is hard to change. Big company HR is also hard to change. <laughs> This is actually really amazing. This almost feels like a private-public partnership as a Trojan horse into fixing what's probably one of the largest problems in the in the modern economy, which is private school or and public school, but you know, private school education tuition you know, experiencing massive inflation, regardless of COVID, right? Loading students down with absurd amounts of debt that they'll never get out of and printing out degrees that are, aren't worth anything, right? They don't have any transferable skills into the real world. I mean, I, I have one, <laughs> I, I can attest to this. And so it's like nonprofit universities are actually just giant profit machines that just don't pay taxes, right? And they also don't serve their customers, the employers. So what you're talking about is almost like, it feels like this Trojan horse solution where, you, where you're using community colleges that, that already have a great infrastructure and, and accreditation to start teaching, you know, really near-term applicable skills. You got, to your point, you got to get industry to come around and say, what do we actually need? But if you're, if you succeed at this, even in a small level, this could disrupt higher education, right? And like fix a bunch of societal problems at the same time. I mean, I say it's, it's even bigger than that. I actually think we fix a big problem in, in just in the economy. I, in many ways, I think the community college that we're working with, I don't want to say they're a means to an end, but that's partially the lever that we're looking to pull to help do that. And so I, I start with two things, which are one, if you can do the job, you should get the job. And I think we are agnostic about degrees, good degrees, bad. But what we say is 
only require a degree for things that actually require a degree. Right now in the market, we, we're not clear about that because we, to be honest, whether we're just used to a certain way or frankly, we don't have the time, it's just efficient to say everyone needs a degree. It's just efficient. It's easy. I, I have, you know, when I used to work at the advisory board company in DC, we got 50,000 resumes a year. So it was simply easy to use it as a screening mechanism, even though- But it's unfair. Yeah, yeah totally. but it doesn't, and it has a particular impact on populations of color, particular. My colleagues at Opportunity at Work, an amazing organization here in the DC area, also based in the Bay Area, has written copiously on this. So that's number one. Number two, what we find in terms of where we really push employers is, on, is creating what we, not just we, but another folks in the space call a T profile. A T, and think about the letter T. You have, and you're familiar, and you're familiar with this, you, this is what you all do. The horizontal part of that T are those human skills, essential skills that transfer across jobs. Those are oral communication, leadership, persuasion, uh, collaboration, questioning, things like that. Also, what's becoming part of those essential skills are the uses of certain technology. We see this particularly in the retail space. What you would think is an analog job, but I was just on with the head of people for Walmart. She said, look, to do stocking, you have to use a Walmart, excuse me, an iPhone-enabled device to do stocking and do inventory. If you can't use that device, you can't be an associate. You can't be a stock clerk anymore. Then the, and then the other part is the deep technical skill and expertise that is required. And the people who are indispensable are the people who are at that intersection, who, are, who have that true T. And again, whether I don't care if it's advanced manufacturing, I don't care if it's in technology where, where I used to spend time, I hear from employers continually, bring me the person with the right mindset, temperament, so on and so forth, I'll teach them the technical stuff. I'll deal with that. So, so I think when we get employers to be clear, it's not just about those technical skills. What capacities make this person good? What do they have to demonstrate to you to make that happen? And that's in, in some ways even harder for employers because in some ways they don't even realize that you have to be good at it to do the job. Like ask a salesperson what makes another good, good salesperson. You, ha- you have to push a little bit to figure it out because some of it is, is it seems ethereal. Oh, that person just gets people to sell. They get people to sign. I used to do sales. I totally get it. But that's the level of precision that we need from employers. And then that's how get, we get community colleges to be that, that responsive. So I think you're right. It requires a transformation, on, I think, on all sides. And the big thing that we're going to get is a transformation in the way that this economy moves. Because then talent can move to where it should be. Versus right now, you have work that needs to get done. you got people who, who need work who can't find each other. Or there are these barriers that stand in the way. And employers are no better off because they have work that needs to get done. And you got people who need work. Well, that's one of the, I think, silver linings of, of this kind of COVID-induced shutdown is it sort of proved that oh, just about all knowledge work can be done remotely, and most of it and we should, did. right? I mean, that's, that's what we do at Braintrust. We, we're a small network, but we connect you know, technical people with you know, non-tech Fortune 1000 companies that need them and can't hire them. And a lot of these companies you know, sort of had this legacy thinking of, well, we really want butts and seats and we want to be able to look over people's shoulders and stuff. And well, now there are no seats. Right? Your seat is in your house. And so, uh, you know, it's really interesting. A lot of this stuff um, probably won't go back. And, and what that does is it frees up opportunity that has been traditionally locked up on the coastlines in the United States. Absolutely. So I want to talk a little bit more about this, this kind of the skills gap that exists and, and some potential solutions for it. You know, upscaling, rescaling, sure. uh, obviously, you know, contingent workforces, like companies need to solve this in a variety of different ways. Sure. It sounds like your strong belief is that the solution might lie within kind of the infrastructure of our community colleges. 
talk to us a little bit about this, maybe a little even more tactical about like how, how does the mechanics of this work? How do you think about, you know, matching the taxonomy of skills gaps with the taxonomy of current skills and then bridging that gap? Yeah, I just, I would love to learn a little more about how do you think about doing that in, in version 1.0? Sure. So I'll say one thing about community colleges and we and our theory of the cases with, with them is twofold. One is of course their infrastructure, their footprint. But the other piece is that in most communities, they are a really integral part of the economic ecosystem. Anytime you have any economic development initiative, there's usually the, pres the presence of the community college as part of it. And people recognize that because most people who need to get a skill, if you were to ask them, hey, I need to learn something new, where should I go to do that? Most people say, hey, go to community college. And so it's this accessible thing that most people understand. You know, it's not a, a brand you have to create locally. Most people, no matter where you grew up, can name their community college. I know I can. In Somerset County, where I grew up, Somerset, Votech, absolutely. You know, we moved to Mercer County, you know, Mercer County Community College. Everyone knows what that is. So what's interesting is that we believe that they are a great and neutral place to draw in, again, your employers, your K-12 school districts, so on and so forth. So I think that's, that's a really important point because part of the mechanism here is that collaboration. I, I like to say to our folks, you have to collaborate to the point where it's uncomfortable and painful because that's how we're going to get the right synergy so that you know what employers need. And employers are going to trust enough to be able to take your folks sight unseen again, getting to a point where, where they just say, you know what, I'll take them all. That's where you want folks to get to. And that requires collaboration and trust. Now, the question of how do you get to what the market needs versus what are known skills Again, that's the thing that we've not done and seen at scale. And so there are two ways to do it. And I say kind of, it's a meet in the middle approach. There's a top down uh, work here. And so we're starting an advisory board for the Community College Gro uh, Growth Engine Fund. One of our folks uh, will be uh, the head of workforce development for LinkedIn North America. There are a number of folks, whether it be them, Burning Glass, MC, Pick Your Database. There's a lot of economic data out there, even the Department of Labor, Labor ONET. That analysis is really important. There's the other, that's, that, that's the top down. The bottom up is go talk to employers and generally get them to project demand. It will change, it'll grow, but when you, if, you, if you're doing that frequently enough and in real time doing both of those, you begin to get an, a pretty accurate view of the economy, particularly when you're place-based. Most people go, who go to a community college and do work, they generally stay within 100 miles of where they live. So you can actually, being really place-based, you're generally mapping people's economic futures. Look, in, I'm here in the DMV, for example, call it from south of Columbia, Maryland, and north of Loudoun County in Virginia, with DC in the middle, that's how workers are, are moving. Really, people, most workers, unless they're truly picking up and moving their entire family, are staying within this area. Someone from where I live is not gonna go work in Philadelphia or even really go work in Baltimore City. That's just the nature of the geography here. So when you do that top-down and bottom-up analysis meeting in the middle, you get a pretty powerful view of what's going on. So first thing is you have to know what the market needs. The second thing, is now, how do I think creatively about how to impart those skills to learners? And so obviously we're having our community colleges do an, an inventory of what they do and what they have. A lot of them are doing really great work. Some of which needs to be accelerated, some of which needs to be transformed, evolved. But then also, how do we think outside the box? One great company that I love is a company called Tailspin that you may have run into. Tailspin basically does reskilling and upskilling via AR and VR. And their models become particularly powerful because they're able now to do this in, in a contactless way. So for example, they're working with farmers insurance to, to train claims adjusters. So what they'll do is for a candidate, they will mail a, a headset. You put on the headset and you're in the house all of a sudden. You have to do an assessment of, hey, there was a fire here. What's the, what's the claim? Let's investigate. And not only can they train you, but they can assess you. 
in terms of how you do. That is a thing you don't see too often in, in, in community colleges. But we're seeing this in the Walmart academies that they built 200 of across the country to train their own workforce. That's just one example. Again, the work that you all are using, mapping all of these you know, particular requirements and being talent-driven. There are a number of things that we think that we can bring into the space that, quite aren't, that aren't, frankly, normally used and getting folks to think outside the box. And then lastly, which I think is really important, how do we verify to the employer that this person has the skills? What is the assessment that you're going to, in technology, particularly for technical roles, it's going to be a little easier. But again, sales. How do I verify that you're going to be a good salesperson? In my old job, they would have me do a mock sales meeting and, and you know, and, and my colleagues would come in, be a super difficult customer. They come in late, they knock over stuff. They give me really, really annoying questions, but that's hard to do at scale. How do I assess those things? And so to me, it's those three parts, knowing what the market needs, being super creative and flexible about how you impart the skills. And then thirdly, what's the assessment that the employer can trust at scale that proves the talent can actually do what they need? And that's our goal in trying to develop. Again, super big challenge. We think we solve it. It's kind of like the economic equivalent of cold fusion in my view. Hey, everyone. Thanks so much for listening to The Way Work Should Work, brought to you by Brain Trust. Like what you're hearing on the podcast? Ready to take the next steps? Visit usebraintrust.com slash match to get matched with highly skilled technical talent today. And for listeners of this podcast, we're offering a free two-week trial. That's right. Top tech talent delivered straight to your inbox within 48 hours, risk-free. Don't wait. Go to usebraintrust.com slash match to get started today. That's usebraintrust.com slash M-A-T-C-H to get started today. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, one of the interesting things, I guess, to a carpenter, everything looks like a nail, but like Adam and I have been building marketplaces yep. and investing in marketplaces right. in Silicon Valley. And, and what you're talking about really is, has marketplace dynamics. You Absolutely. need to build liquidity between the taxonomy of, of demands that the companies have and, and obviously the current skill sets that people have. And then you're using education as a pathway to build better liquidity and better matching between the two. And, you know, how do you think about, oftentimes when marketplaces start, one of the things you do is you start with a lot less categories. Correct. And it's easier to build liquidity. And when you do a lot less categories, you, you can build liquidity faster and get a better match between both sides of the network. Can you talk a little bit about kind of your guys' philosophy on the, the range of different demands from employers sure. and the range of different skills, that seems really hard to solve unless you narrow it down to say like we match people that are going to go into sales or going to go into these sort of things. The testing becomes easier. The education becomes easier. So how have you guys thought about that going deep in sure. categories versus going wide? So a lot of, so the, all the schools that we've worked with have kind of named macro industries that, that they're focused on because Again, being in these particular places, there are certain things that are on the upswing. So if you go to Pima College in Tucson, construction's big. They're building a lot down there. They, they have a lot of space. That's one of the places where they're going to focus. If you go to Seattle College, it's obviously technology and IT is really big because of Microsoft and Amazon in their backyards. Here in Prince George's County, healthcare is really big. We have Kaiser, Dimensions Healthcare, all growing. New York City, have a hodgepodge, obviously, because of, of what it is. Austin, similar. High technology as well as an, an allied health field. So most folks are focusing on one or two macro industries. That's, I think, number one, where, where we are having each school create what we call three micro pathways. When we say micro pathways, it's pathways of skills that lead to a job. So for example, for our folks who have said allied health is where they want to focus, where we're spending the rest of this year particularly is 
Now, what job? Are you focusing on phlebotomy? Are you focusing on physician assistant? For advanced manufacturing, which is another, which is another big focus for folks like Ivy Tech in Indiana, are we focusing on welding? Are we focusing on using a computerized lathe? What exactly are we focused on? Because if we can get to that level of specificity within these macro sectors, well, you, you do two things. One, you create a good micro pathway to get someone to a job. But then secondly, let's say someone creates a micro pathway to being a welder. That puts them on, on a broader path of an advanced manufacturing. There's another job after that that, we, there's, a, that there's a, another micro pathway for and that that. And there's a and that's what's really powerful. So most of our folks are already picking a macro industry. We're going to get them to a good starting point for a job that, again, can do what, what we talked about. But the goal is that we're not just going for a job, we're going for a career. And um, if we can put folks on that path, particularly folks, again, who've been locked out, I think we are, uh, we're going to be in a good place. You know, I say this about community college students a lot. Majority are people of color, majority first generation, majority working parents. Again, these are the folks who are going to be the majority of our economy, but frankly, we fail them on, on, on a regular basis. So I think the answer is, in some ways, the schools have picked for us, and the goal is for us to help them get even more precise, and then from there, build those pathways. So, Chike, I, I want to switch gears a little bit. Uh, something we touched on earlier with, with this sort of forced remote environment we're in and, and how we come out of this and possibly better. I mean, I, I know you spoke at the UN General Assembly today about building inclusive opportunities to, you know, better rebuild with executives from Walmart and Brookings, you know, post-COVID-19 to you know, come out better. How do you think about that? What does that look like to you? What did you guys talk about today? Sure. So it was great because this was a really a global perspective. So, you know, we had the head of wall of people for for Walmart International. Um, Walmart trains, I believe they figure it was a million associates a year. If you look at Walmart, they, they're, they're looking at generally every year, almost 100% turnover. So they have to do this and do it quickly on a regular basis. Then we had my colleague, Marcella from Brookings, who actually used to be at USAID and is working on looking at skills gaps, the future of work across a number of different geographies. And so, for example, she has a particular expertise in Latin America. And if we think we're going through stuff, if you look at the jobs that are most at risk, Latin America is, is, is in an even worse place because a lot of those jobs are a bigger part of the economy than they are here. They're not as much a service economy as we are. So, so working through that, I'll say a couple things. I think the way we kind of talked about it was there are um, obstacles and opportunities. So one of the big questions, and I remember this in my old role at McChrystal Group, which is there are things that are growing and that there actually is even more need of. No, you know, none of us knew what contact tracing was six months ago, but now you cannot go to a jurisdiction that believes that they have enough of them. That's you know, you know, number one. Secondly, think about the move to contactless. So Walmart, if I remember correctly, in 2019, they had to hire 40,000 personal shoppers. They had never had that position before. Now it's just year one. So again, there are all these new capacities that no one ever had to uh, think about before. So what has COVID forced us to do? And I think if you were to look in a couple of places, one is in all these essential fields, things that we do every day, but that now we have to make sure there's no contact. And then secondly, allied health, just whether it be nurses, phlebotomists, people who draw blood, folks who are frankly, as someone called it, the brain tickle when you need to do a test for, uh, for uh, COVID. But those are all new roles yeah. that you, you, you have to do. So that's, I think, number one. Number two, going back to the horizontal part of that T, technology becomes an even bigger piece. Think about this now. We became super literate in Zoom within six months. I had used Zoom once or twice before, but if I didn't know how to use it, I couldn't do my job. And there are a number of technologies that are now like that, that are now critical. And even basic things like Google Docs, Microsoft Office, things like that, those are table stakes now. You actually can't do that. And you actually can't go into the job market without that. And, for, and what's interesting is that for a lot of folks who need those skills, 
only 10% of them have the, have the opportunity to actually get training in it. So I think it's the majority of American workers need to use a computer for their work. Only 10% have access to training to actually get those skills. So those are things that we have to, to tackle, but there's opportunity here. If we can take advantage of this moment and do it right, all that's happening is an acceleration of what was happening before, which is that greater automation and move toward this. And if we actually do this right and take advantage of this, you can actually have an economy and a, and a workforce that's in a better place than it ever could have been before. And secondly, you have a bunch of things you didn't know you needed before. Again, I use contact tracing as an example. The question is, will we take advantage of the moment or will we squander it? Will we waste it? And you know, at least for, for our, from, from our vantage point for, for the design lab, we, we mean to make the most of it. And I think it's about bringing those partners together um, who can help us do that. Fascinating work and just such important work that you're doing to, to provide opportunity to underprivileged communities and, and also to really provide the workforce of tomorrow. Uh, so thank you for thank the you. work that you're doing there. It's, it's amazing. We're going to transition into something we call kind of a lightning round. Sure. Uh, and so the idea is just kind of stream of consciousness, you know, one, one, two sentence answers, first things that come to mind. Sure. And so the, the first one is what's one technology that you think will dramatically accelerate the future of work? ARVR. You know, I, I, I love that answer because it's, it's such an underrated tech. Most people at, at least out here have completely dismissed it. And, you know, Facebook and Google and others are, are doing a lot of work on it, but I completely agree with you. If you can drop into a room like that and that, if you're going to distance learn, like this isn't quite there, right? AR, VR is actually probably bridges that gap. That's cool. And I say it because I'm seeing it in real time in places like retail, places like claims adjustment, like, you know, Silicon Valley is, is, is a great place, but in some ways it's always a little ahead, uh, which is good and bad sometimes. But for folks out there, it's become revolutionary. And again, I think we're just scratching the surface on this application, particularly in the training uh, and also the assessment piece, which is really important. Yeah, that makes sense. Who's one person you follow closely on this topic of future of work? <sighs> I follow too many people here. I'm going to break the rules. I'm, 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 I'm going to do three, and they're all folks who I've worked for in the past. One is Jim Shelton. Jim Shelton was an old boss of mine when he was assistant secretary of innovation at the Department of Education. But McKinsey guy, been in private equity, was at the Gates Foundation, actually was the first president of education at CZI, and now um, is the number two, is the chief impact officer at Blue Meridian, a uh, philanthropic collaborative, brilliant on this space and, and fearless, which I've always appreciated about him. Another is a guy named Byron August, who used to be my boss at McKinsey years ago, started the high-tech practice in, in LA for them almost 20 years ago, and then actually went to the Obama administration to basically run the skills portfolio there and runs an, an organization now called Opportunity at Work, which is basically working on how do you get the 70-ish million people who don't have a full college degree but have skills into jobs. And again, we know what that population looks like. So the, the so I'll name those two as people who I follow religiously. I steal a lot of their stick. I try and give credit when, when I uh, remember to, but there are two people who are brilliant on this and who I follow on a regular basis. That's fantastic. Oh, maybe what's, what's one article, piece of research, or even a book that's kind of fundamentally shifted your perspective on future work that maybe other people could learn from? Oh, so um, two great article, one article from over the weekend. Um, oh God, and I'm forgetting the title of it. It was by David Deming, it was in the New York Times about basically what we could do to jumpstart the economy if we invested in community colleges. David Deming, last name D-E-M-I-N-G, it literally came out Sunday. Oh, yeah, it is. Yeah. Community colleges can be engines of economic recovery. Yes, right? that one. 
Also, uh, a book by uh, an old friend of mine, a man named Jay, uh, Jamie Marisotis, who runs the Lumina Foundation in, in Indianapolis, wrote a book years ago called America Needs Talent. And he's also writing a new book called Human Work, which I have already pre-ordered, but really looking at, again, that intersection of that T, those professional essential skills plus the, the technical. He's brilliant on this. Again, I steal a lot of his shtick and try and give credit where I can. <laughs> I'll have to look that up. Which one sort of temporary change or something a lot of people might think is a temporary change as a result of COVID that you actually think will become permanent? Uh, it's a great question. I'll say one that's purely selfish in that, and I'm sure it's been true for you. I think with the amount of times over the last 10 years that I got on the plane for an hour meeting. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, like, I think of how many times I've done that. I think that's over. I think... I, I can't justify it now. And so I, I don't mind that. I mean, I have a ton of miles there. I don't know when the hell I'm going to use them, but, but I think that's over. I think people have realized how much you can get done. And I think the threshold now for in-person, really when you have to travel is going to be a lot higher. Like, you know, my view of it is, you know, if I were back in the private sector, I'd say, unless I'm literally collecting a check or I'm literally, you're signing a purchase order, it's going to be hard to get me to get on the plane for just a meeting. God, I hope you're right. <laughs> I hope you're right too. <laughs> uh, and then, and then a uh, a question from kind of this is a from a famous contrarian Peter Thiel. But what's something you believe strongly that's a that's an unpopular view today? I'm trying to pick. I'm trying to pick one I can say. <laughs> it's a good. I don't know if it's contrarian, but I I, I see the conversation oh. go this way sometimes. There's this debate. You'll see it couched in these terms, which is technical education versus liberal arts education or technical skills versus soft skills. And again, I believe that that binary is death to our workforce and death to our economy. The power is in the intersection. The, those people who are at that intersection, again, think about data scientists, UX designers, those, I mean, UX is a combination of computer coding and also deep understanding of human centered design and art to make yeah. that work well. Those are the people, not just them, but people who have those intersections who are indispensable in, in, in the coming economy. And that people say they understand that. Whenever I have these conversations, we get to this binary really quickly, whether people mean to or not. And I always find it important to say and state it, I'm not gonna make that trade-off because that trade-off, number one, is bad for people's long-term careers. It's also bad for businesses. Even when you ask them, I still remember going to a Colgate Palmolive plant in I think it was in Guangdong province in China. This is nine years ago. And I remember asking one of the foremen, I said, like, what's your, your biggest issue here? He's like, my, my biggest issue is getting folks who can do a thing I asked them to do without asking me how to do it, <laughs> which is the kind of the classic, go figure it out. Soft and hard skills. Yeah, yeah exactly. You know. Yeah, I, I actually think that, that I actually think that is a pretty contrarian viewpoint. <laughs> I mean, it's it, it's a false choice, right? Arts versus STEM, like it, it's a completely false choice. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, well, this uh, has been amazing. Thank you, sir, for joining us. This was an awesome conversation. Uh, where can people kind of reach you and find out more about you and your work? Sure. So if you go to eddesignlab.org. You can literally click on a banner at the top of the page and you'll see our announcement about the Community College Growth Engine Fund. And again, there'll be more announcements really coming in the next couple of days. Uh, you can follow me at, on Twitter at C-R-A-G-U-H. I'm also on LinkedIn. And you just reach out, happy to chat. I mean, again, particularly if you're an institute of higher learning or you're an employer who wants to get involved, 
please reach out. Let us know. We definitely have a, have a place for you. And again, I just want to thank you, Adam, you gave for having me and just thank you for what you do. I think the work that you're doing is going to be critical to creating the workforce of the future. Well, likewise, um, I, I'm so amazed at everything on your plate right now and, and the big, big swing you guys are taking. So we're, uh, we're here cheering for you and rooting for you. Thank you so much. Thanks for joining. Great to see you. Have a great rest of the day. All right. Thanks, guys.